Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Uh, we're uh, two days away from Christmas, and we enter into the Christmas season uh, year after year, and it is a privilege to be reminded of the great event of the birth of Jesus. And today, as we think about the birth of Jesus, the account of Jesus' birth, um, I want us to uh, look at the Gospel of Luke, and I want us to think about the wonder of this event, how Luke gives us this story. But I'm also going to try to take two portions of the story and contrast them. Um, We're going to look at Luke chapter 1, verse 30 through 35. And I was going to read chapter 2, 1 through through 20. But uh, we had uh, 8 through 14 read, so I might just skip over that since we heard it so wonderfully already this morning and uh, continue from there. So if you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, I want to read 30 through 35. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now flip over to chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Verses 8 through 14, we heard 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
the shepherds returned, glorifying and, and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. One of the great characteristics of the Bible is that there are many high points throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And that those high points are so important and so momentous that oftentimes they're recounted several times. They're told more than once. And as they're told, there usually is some kind of new perspective, a different angle. You could call it uh, like if you're in photography, a different camera angle, a different shot is taken. We see this in the Old Testament, such as in the creation story in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You know that Genesis chapter 1, we have the creation day by day is counted out to us. And then chapter 2, the creation story seems to be told again. Only there is a difference. There is a different focus, I think. There is an emphasis on the importance of the creation of mankind in that account. Or another place where this happens is the Exodus story. In the Exodus story, a big, major story, an event in the people, uh, in the, the history of Israel where God demonstrated his power and his grace. We can read about that in Exodus and Numbers. But it is also picked up in several places through the Old Testament. Uh, it's repeated and recounted many times. Once, you know, it happens in Joshua. It happens in some of the Psalms. And, and in each of those places, there is this significant event where God puts on display something that he does that is significant and powerful and important, and it's retold. And it's retold with a different emphasis, like the Exodus story. Sometimes it's a, uh, a warning. Sometimes it is a look at the wonder of God's grace and provision for his people. So it shouldn't surprise us that when we come to the New Testament, that we see this momentous event of the coming of Jesus from different angles, even in the New Testament. We have four accounts of the story, the birth of Jesus, three accounts of the birth of Jesus, and um, Matthew and John speak about the coming of Jesus, and in Matthew there is this definite anticipation that the coming of Jesus will change everything and that the coming of Jesus is going to have ramifications and fulfillments of God's promises to all the peoples of the earth. You could think of even at the end of Matthew when Jesus is telling the disciples to go and preach to all the nations of the world that that's a uh, bearing out fruit of the wonder of the coming of Jesus which was going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant of touching all the peoples of the earth. And that's an important theme or a camera angle. John's gospel looks at Jesus as part of the second person of the Trinity. The word with God who was God who became flesh talking about the e eternality of Jesus, the wonder of Jesus. But as we look at the Gospel of Luke, Luke is much more interested in, seems like, maybe the personal accounts. He is making a, an accounting from the, 
the experiences of the people that were involved in the birth of Jesus. Luke being a physician, one who was, had a great interest in people, he probably was deeply interested in the, the lives and the experiences of people, and that's what he recounts. And as we read the Gospel of Luke, it seems like even in our passage at the end of verse uh, 19, it says that, um, uh, 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, all these things and pondered them in her heart. There seems to be this note, this expectation, or maybe the possibility that Luke went and talked to all of these people and brought the, the, the evidence together and therefore is describing the wonder of this account. One of the other things that's interesting about the Gospel of Luke, though, in contrast even to Matthew, is that Luke identifies Jesus as being poor and lowly. It's not in, uh, in Luke that the Magi come and bring frankincense and myrrh and uh, you know, fanfare and recognition of a king. But in Luke, we get a, a pretty solid picture of the Messiah, Jesus, coming in lowly circumstances, born in lowly circumstances, even when he goes and when the parents, Mary and Joseph, take Jesus to the temple to be dedicated on the day of presentation, eight days after he's born, it is not a wealthy offering that is made. It is the sacrifice of the poor people that is made. It, it reminds us of what is said to Mary in the Gospel of Luke, only in the Gospel of Luke, when the angel appears to Mary and then Mary makes a response and in verse, chapter 1, verse 48, Mary says that God has regarded my humble estate. And in, in verse 51, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and he has exalted those who were humble. And in verse 53, it says, He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. So we have this idea, this kind of focus, this lens of Luke on the birth of Jesus as one who comes to a lowly place. And so as we've read Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 35, which is the pronouncement that Mary is going to have this special baby that God was going to move on her and bring her a son. We have a contrast with that in chapter 2, some of the details of that birth. And it's a fascinating thing. I think whenever we come to Christmas, it's tempting at times for us who have experienced several Christmases, and some of us have not experienced that many, so that's you're still excited and growing and learning. And as you experience them over and over, sometimes we get too busy with what's going on and plans for the day and for the hour, and for the families coming in and, and, you know, all the accommodations, all the plans that have to be made. Um, that's all good. That's all important. We all do those things, and there are blessings in God's life that we get to do those things. They're wonderful things. 
But one of the challenges for us as we go through Christmas after Christmas is that we never forget the marvel and the wonder of Christmas. And my idea today was to read the Luke chapter 1, 30 through 35, and the Luke chapter 2 that I don't know about you, but Luke chapter 2 often is the one I read around the Christmas tree when we're going to open presents and stuff. Um, just that we compare and contrast those, and my hope is that we would capture some of what Mary experienced in 19, treasuring up these things and pondering them in her heart. I hope that as we look at these two passages, we'll be once again struck by the wonder and and the miracle of Jesus coming into our world. And as we travel through this Christmas season, we will be captivated by that grand truth and not just by all the events and fun times that we will have, but the wonder of Jesus and that our hearts will be drawn to love him and to worship him and to know him in a greater way. So, let us try to look at these two passages, and I want to draw out three great contrasts in these two passages and present them in a, in a way that hopefully brings some freshness, some wonder to this event. The contrasts are seen in the two passages between what Mary was told in chapter 1 and what happens in the birth of Jesus in chapter 2. And there is a real description happening in chapter 2, and we want to kind of contrast those things. So first, contrast number one. The highest son in the lowliest place. We are told in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, that this child was to be the son of God. I mean, we read these probably regularly at Christmas, but can you imagine hearing the words that you would have a child who would be the Son of God? And then contrast that with chapter 2. The Son of the living God is given birth. He is wrapped in swaddling clothes. He is laid in a manger. And, of course... It's the distance that should strike us. The Son of God in chapter 1. A manger to teenage parents in the Middle East in chapter 2. The contradiction, the, uh, the distance, the paradox is amazing. These two great ideas bring into our hearts and our minds the sheer wonder of Christmas. The Son of God is in the dark womb of the Virgin Mary who, when he took on being a human as an embryo, humanity assumed our human nature so that what, what we cannot grasp with our minds, we still proclaim with our words that God somehow stepped into our world. It is a grand truth. And, it, and we say it pretty regularly, pretty commonly, but 
Sometimes we don't stop to ponder the wonder of it. And I think of, uh, we sing a lot of songs that communicate the wonder of this truth. We sang some this morning. One of the songs that we do sing at Christmas is, O come, all ye faithful. And there is one little sentence in there I'd like to draw your attention to. Maybe we'll never sing this song the same way again. But it says, and it's kind of a strange sentence, he abhors not the virgin's womb. He abhors not the virgin's womb. The creator of the universe, the Lord of glory, the Lord of all the angels, became a man, taking on flesh, taking on the very fragile characteristics of life. And we sing, He abhors not the virgin's womb. Why did he do this? The explanation is a thing to ponder. It reminds me of uh, J.B. Phillips, um, not just because he's got a good last name, uh, which he does, but uh, J.B. Phillips was a New Testament scholar. He's been long gone off the scene, but he did translate the New Testament, and it's the Phillips translation, which is I'd recommend. Uh, and uh, uh, but he also wrote many books, and one of the, he liked fantasy books. He loved uh, Milton and Paradise Lost and poetry and imagery, and he wrote a book called God With Us, The Message of Christmas, a fantasy about Christmas. In, and in his story, there is a senior angel who is showing a very young angel around the splendors of the universe. And they view whirling galaxies and blazing suns and they flit across the grand universe and enter into this one particular galaxy with 500 billion stars. As the two of them draw near to the star that we call our sun and the circling planets, the senior angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant sphere turning very slowly on its axis. It looked as dull as a dirty tennis ball to the little angel since he has just traveled to see the grandness of the galaxies all around. And his mind is filled with the size and the glory of what he had just seen. And now he's being told to give focus and attention to this little ball. And he says, I want you, the senior angel, I want you to watch that one particularly, pointing with his finger to earth. Well, it looks very small and rather dirty to me, said the little angel. What's so special about that one? to the little angel earth and that seemed that significant he insisted that there is something that happened on this planet the senior angel says that this small insignificant and not overly clean planet was the renowned planet of the visitation do you mean that our great and glorious prince went down in person to that fifth-rate little ball? Why should he do a thing like that? 
the little angel's face was all wrinkled with disgust. Do you mean to tell me, he said, that he stooped so low as to become one of those creepy, crawly creatures of that floating ball? The senior angel said, I do, and I don't think he would like you to call them creepy, crawly creatures in that tone of voice. For strange as it may seem to us, he loves them. He went down to visit them, to lift them up, to become like him. The little angel looked blank. Such a thought was almost incomprehensible. It is beyond our comprehension, too, as we enter this Christmas season. And yet this is the clear teaching of the Christian faith. And to understand this is to understand the key to knowing Christ and the wonder of Christmas. As Christians, we believe we live in parallel worlds. One world consists of hills and lakes and barns and politicians and shepherds watching their flocks by night. The other consists of angels and sinister forces and somewhere out there, places like heaven and hell. One, one night on a cold, dark hill of Bethlehem, those two worlds intersected in a dramatic way in the birth of Jesus. God, who knows no, before or after, entered into our time and space. God, who knows no boundaries, took on the shocking confines of a baby's body with skin and limitations. The ominous God felt restraints of mortality. The highest son took the lowliest place. That's contrast number one. Contrast number two, divine kingship and earthly reception. We add to this that in chapter one, we are reminded that this baby who was to be born was to be the king, the son of David, who would inherit a kingdom that would reign forever. And we get in chapter two, the contrast. This divine king, God's very own son, is born and laid in a manger. We get little hints of the kingly nature of Jesus in the prophecies in the Old Testament. Think of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, a great passage. We read it almost every Christmas. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing, upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The honor of this king is the same honor that God the Creator receives. Think about the passage in Isaiah chapter 6 when the Lord appears before Isaiah. 
And he gets a glimpse of the throne room with the creatures, the heavenly creatures flying around, the seraphs with six wings, two for flying, two for covering their faces, two for covering their feet, and and all the while proclaiming, holy, holy, holy. It is the glory of this one, this God, this triune God, who is to receive honor and glory when he comes into the world chapter 2 identifying the time of Jesus birth is kind of a contrast as well because it happened in chapter 2 of uh, of Luke chapter 2 verse 1 in uh, in the days of Caesar Augustus there's where we kind of see the contrast because while Caesar Augustus is gaining for himself power and significance and glory. Augustus, the first time the Roman Senate ever gave that label to one of the Roman rulers. Augustus, which means holy and revered, always a term used for the gods of Rome, but for the first time used for Caesar Augustus. When Caesar Augustus is taking on that recognition and being given that accolade and that authority at the very same time in contrast to that comes the king of kings and the lord of lords what an amazing difference caesar's grand decree fit into the plan of a great god who sent his king into the world to be the son born in the city of David, fulfilling the promise of Micah in chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. An eternal king was born, and the world did not know it. Rather, while they were captivated by their own rulers and their own political structures, the day of the greatest ruler arrived. The king of grace and the king of glory. And this ruler, this king, this baby belongs to the realm of glory and worship, reverence and complete obedience. Caesar, with all his pomp and circumstances, was leader over a fading kingdom. Jesus came into the world ascending and his kingdom is still ascending. What a contrast. Contrast in power. This is the chosen one through whom all things exist and for whom all things exist. A great contrast, number two. Number three, contrast number three, divine knowledge and human ignorance. The lofty conception in chapter 1, verse 35, describing this one and this baby in grand glory, contrasted in chapter 2, verse 7, in coming to a manger wrapped with swaddling clothes. The one from the heights of heaven and then being wrapped in swaddling clothes in the Middle East. Swaddling clothes, sometimes we're not so sure. They look like just clothes of an infant. But 
some have indicated, and I, I will distance myself a little bit, <laughs> that swaddling clothes were thought to be needed by infants to help them to grow, to stay healthy. And so they swaddled their infants pretty tight. But we know that that's not true. But they didn't know that, and so they would swaddle their kids tight. They even thought maybe that their arms would get crooked and their legs wouldn't be straight, so you need to swaddle them up really tight. You know, Jesus condescended and came into a world where human perception, human ideas reigned. That's why I called divine knowledge and human ignorance. Jesus didn't come in and change everything. He comes from heaven where all knowledge and all understanding of how everything works is known. And yet he came into our world and lived his life under the ideas and, and dictates of a world of humans doing their best to figure out what is right and wrong. And Jesus, at the end of his life, also faced the ignorance of humanity. Because as Jesus came to the greatest achievement of his life, which was the surrendering his life on the cross so that he could be the savior of the world, where he would pay the punishment for our sin, where he would open the gates of heaven for all who would believe in him. When he was taken to the cross, Luke in Acts goes to great lengths to point out that Jesus was at the end of his life crucified at the hands of ignorant, ignorant men. Just as Jesus would be placed in a manger made of wood, not an expected landing place for the king of the universe, he would later experience being laid out on a wooden cross and crucified there as a sacrifice for men. This is where the gospel message stretches our minds in all that Jesus took on to accomplish the work of salvation for us who believe. His coming, his incarnation is filled with meaning and substance that churns our hearts to wonder at this amazing event of Christmas. Christ was treated with human ignorance at his birth and he was treated with spiritual ignorance at his death. And yet knowing this, he still came. He showed mercy, maybe the greatest mercy. And one of the greatest commentaries on the incarnation probably is penned by Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. What a contrast. I'd like to read for you a poem called Mary's Song by Lucy Shaw. 
you can always look it up on YouTube or whatever, or Google if you want to get a copy of it. Uh, Lucy Shaw, Mary's poem. It captures the wonder. And of course, like poetry, you've you kind of got to read it over and over and mull it over, so I'm just giving you the first brush, and you can go and check it out yourself. Blue homespun and the bend of my breast. Keep warm this small, hot, naked star. Fallen to my arms, rest. You have had so far to come. Now nearness satisfies. The body of God sweetly, quiet he lies. Whose vigor hurled a universe, he sleeps. Whose eyelids have not closed before. His breath so slight it seems, no breath at all, once ruffled the dark deeps to sprout a world charmed by doves' voices, the whisper of straw. He dreams, hearing no music from his other spheres, breath, mouth, ears, eyes. He is curtailed who overflowed all skies, all years, older than eternity. Now he is new, now native to earth as I am, nailed to my poor planet, caught that I might be free, blind in my womb, to know my darkest darkness ended. Brought to this earth for me to be newborn. And for him to see me mended, I must see him torn. Pond, ponder and wonder at the great event of our Lord Jesus Christ coming to us. That last line, I think, says so much. And for him to see me mended, I must see him torn. The great climax of Jesus' birth, his mission, his plan of coming into this earth was to bring grace and forgiveness. May the wonder of his grace make our lives a beacon of that grace. This season and all seasons so that others may know the wonder of God's saving love extended to all who believe. If you've never trusted the Savior, this King who came into the world to bring deliverance and new life, trust Him today. Make this the best Christmas ever. And you who believe, renew your wonder this season. Renew your love to Christ Ponder afresh and anew the incarnation of his coming and the wonder of it all for all he has done for us and respond in love and devotion to him. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we celebrate your grace and your goodness and your love which we see on display in the coming of Jesus the truth and light that he has brought into our world.
because of your call in his life and his desire to fulfill the purposes of God in bringing forgiveness and restoration and new life. Lord, you are making us new through Jesus. And because of him, we celebrate. Because of him, we follow him. We worship him. We look to him. Help us to ponder the wonder of Christmas this year. In Jesus' name, amen.